I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 21 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, the Reverend John Zuring has tough questions from curious Christians as he encourages searching for truth during Lent. The Reverend Daniel Hedrick asks us to imagine that we might actually live Lent in our very bodies and not just think about it in his essay, Lent Embodied. And finally, the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson encourages the development of spiritual fitness during the season of Lent. The Reverend John Searing has served United Church of Christ congregations for 22 years as a pastor in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. He is the author of more than 30 books. His most recent, from our partners at Judson Press, is Get Your Church Ready to Grow, a guide to building attendance and participation, and is available at judsonpress.com. He joins us this week with his essay, Tough Questions from Curious Christians, Searching for Truth During Lent. On Easter Sunday, church attendance swells to overflowing. Longtime members whisper to one another how wonderful it would be if every Sunday could be like Easter. Additional services must be added in some congregations to hold all those who come to worship. The Easter message, he is not here, he is risen. It can be an emotional Sunday, Less so than Christmas for many attenders, but for the church, Easter is the high point of the year to celebrate the risen Christ. If the church were to ask and to listen to its people, it might hear that some of its devout members have some confusion, doubt, or questions about Easter. When do those members raise their questions and connect with others in conversation about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? Certainly not on Easter Sunday. The swell of the organ and the overflow of voices collaborating to sing the Hallelujah Chorus overwhelms the intellectual curiosity about the events of Easter. During Holy Week and the celebration of Easter, it does not seem like the right time to engage in probing questions. So, when is the right time? Lent is a great time to consider the questions of the curious. Although the church is always well served to encourage followers to raise questions in their search for truth. Jesus encouraged people to be thinking people. When Jesus took the great Shema from Deuteronomy and renamed it Christianity's greatest commandments, he added one word, the word mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. That's from Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Use your mind, Jesus would have said. God wants people to be thinking people, to raise questions out of curiosity, to evaluate data, to consider points of view, and to temper faith with reason, wisdom, and common sense. The church has nothing to fear from the raising of probing questions by thinking people of faith. Followers may question the wisdom or safety of asking questions. What will church leaders think? Perhaps they wonder if their church would feel threatened when beliefs are questioned. What could the curious questioning of traditional beliefs lead to? Could the raising of questions weaken my faith? Faithful followers may wonder if God would be upset when they question traditional or orthodox beliefs. During Lent, consider some of the questions that the curious may be quietly pondering. Why did God allow Jesus to die? 
Who killed Jesus? How should I feel about them? Am I wrong to hate them? Is hate ever justified? Might I go to hell when I die? Why did God allow somebody I have loved to die? Is it possible that I may have a tinge of being mad at God about something? Was Jesus God? Or was Jesus a man? How could he be both? I'm not sure if I believe in the physical resurrection. Is there another way to look at it? Can I still sing those glorious Easter hymns about Jesus being raised from the dead if I question his physical resurrection? Does my church insist that I believe a certain way about Jesus? How does that make me feel about my church? Does my church get more concerned about the correctness or incorrectness of beliefs than it does about aspiring to live a God-like life? What if I cannot accept the substitution view that Jesus died for us, died on the cross to bear the agony, pains, and penalty for our sins that we should have borne? What if I have a hard time seeing that Jesus became our substitute to bear the punishment that we should have experienced? This seems to imply that there was something Jesus did to change the heart and mind of God, that God was poised to, con- to condemn humans and rid them from life, but somehow Jesus changed a wrathful, angry God into a gentle, compassionate God. What kind of God of love is that? Did Jesus have an ego? Jesus spoke about being the stone which the builders rejected, which makes us wonder, did Jesus feel the rejection? Did he feel not appreciated, not valued? If the word which became flesh came to dwell among us and to feel what we feel and hurt like we hurt, would not he too have some bad days when it felt like he was not valued, appreciated, noticed, or understood? Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's from Luke 23, verse 43. Why did Jesus say that to a thief being executed? Did the thief do or say anything worthy of Jesus' assurance of paradise? Can this kind of grace apply to people who who have never sought to follow God? Might it seem unfair? Does grace need to be fair? From the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's from Luke 23, verse 34, in the King James Version. A church member said, I can see forgiving those who ask me to, but if they don't ask, why should I bother forgiving them? There may be some who have hurt you, whom you feel you could never forgive. They have not asked you to. Should you? Overlooking Jerusalem, Jesus cried and lamented, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. That's from Matthew 23, verse 37 in the King James Version. Why would a government at any level reject the wisdom and insights of prophets in its midst? Is this happening today? Tough questions raised by curious questions do not weaken their faith. Nor is it discourteous, challenging to orthodox teaching, insulting to God, or a sign of weak faith. Rather, to probe out of curiosity is perfectly appropriate. 
You can see from the Gospels that Jesus took people seriously. Jesus took people and their questions seriously, as he did with Thomas, whom history inaccurately named Doubting Thomas. Thomas was not doubting. He was curious. Thomas had a lot of questions. Notice that even at the end, even when Thomas said he would not believe until he saw the nail marks on Jesus' hands, Jesus still took Thomas seriously. In fact, Jesus used questions, even questions from hostile sources, as a teaching moment. This suggests that when we do not understand something, we are at least dealing with a kind teacher who has patience with us and takes our questions seriously. May we, clergy, Christian educators, and leaders of the church, encouraging the pondering of curious questions about the most challenging of subjects, especially at Eastertide. We have nothing to fear in our members' search for truth. We may not have the answers, and that is fine. To say, I don't know, is an answer with intellectual integrity, and questioners will respect that. To say, do not ask, is an answer unlike the engaging master teacher whom we follow and who took questions and used them to the glory of God. The Reverend Daniel Hedrig is Associate Pastor of Northside Drive Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to joining Northside Drive, he practiced civil litigation with a law firm in Knoxville, Tennessee. He is a former fellow of both the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and the Fellows of Auschwitz for the Study of Professional Ethics. Here he is with his essay, Lent Embodied. As we enter the season of Lent, imagine with me that we might actually live Lent in our very bodies and not just think about it. Without an embodied faith, we can lapse into overly intellectual and cognitive forms of religious observance. I often say to myself and others when confronted with a dilemma, don't overthink it. It may be that Lent has been overthought and under-embodied. Much like this essay, it has been written about, but not lived. What I mean by embodied is that we might open all five of our senses up to Lenten experience. I believe the Apostle Paul was one who very much lived an embodied faith. He described the faithful as always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Followers of Jesus are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 2.15. So how might we embody Lent? Lent begins with perhaps the most tactile of liturgical days, Ash Wednesday. On this day, Lent can be touched. During this day, Christians experience the imposition of ashes, That word carries with it some unfortunate overtones. Related to the verb impose, an imposition is something forced on us that carries with it the presumption of being unwelcome. I don't mean to impose, we say, as we intrude into a circle of friends deep in conversation. Rather than a rude intrusion, the ashes are a welcome touch on our foreheads of an ancient sign and substance. The imposition 
of ashes carries with them a sense, both in their organic composition and their symbolism, of gravitas. The ashes are an imposition from beyond. They are a sign of the deepest truth that we came from dust, and to dust we shall return. That is why the sign on our foreheads is intended to linger on our bodies. As Christians bearing the sign of the cross enter restaurants, coffee shops, subways, and neighborhoods, they carry with them the sign of their mortality and their redemption. Mortality lingers until it is snuffed out like a flame. And yet it lingers still long after it fades from our foreheads. It lingers even as the minister traces the sign of the cross on the head of the casket, recalling the sign which governs birth and now redeems death. Ash Wednesday is so transformative because it is the rare Christian ritual where we are touched by another human being, and the whole narrative symbology of our faith is traced on our very foreheads. We can feel the finger on our flesh, touch the ashy residue as we walk away, and see the sign of the cross reflected in the mirror. We need such tangible signs of hope and gravity in our increasingly transient and superficial realm. Lent can be tasted and smelled. For centuries, it has been customary to fast during Lent, right up to that great feast known as Easter. I remember early on in my observance of Lent as a Christian, the act of giving up sweets a long period of privation capped by Easter Sunday when I ate a piece of lemon buttercream cake from my favorite bakery. In many cultures, it is common to have roast lamb on Easter. Hot cross buns, those delightfully sticky and sweet rolls, are often eaten on Good Friday. When we fast, we are invited to experience a small taste of suffering, and to know the deep longing and need for wholeness with and through God. Jesus did not die so that we might diet our way to the cross, but done with the right spiritual intent, fasting helps us to pause from the hedonistic impulses of our earthly life. And the smells are rich and otherworldly, the smell of incense drifting through holy space, the smell of rich baked communion bread. The smell of fresh palms flapping around in children's hands on Palm Sunday. As you journey through Lent, be attentive to the ways God shows up in the aroma of Christ. Lent can be seen. We see the smoke and fire of Ash Wednesday where our confessions of sin, often literally in many congregations, are set on fire. And we watch the smoke waft up to the heavens. A whole year of transgression can be seen to dissipate. We see the thick darkness of tenebrae services where the lights are extinguished one by one. More and more these days, I have found myself looking at the cross during worship services. For one thing, it reminds me that our worship is directed to the one who died upon the cross. On perhaps a more basic and biological level, having an image to train my eyes upon helps clarify the words I'm singing and saying in a way that is devotional rather than perfunctory. Finally, Lent is heard. Perhaps Lent is heard even before it is believed. It is heard in the readings of Scripture which tell us of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, of his scourge, scourging and mocking and torture 
And in his final hours on the cross, Lent is heard as clergy say, from dust you came and to dust you shall return on Ash Wednesday. Lent is heard in the proclamation of preaching and in the gift of Bach on Good Friday. Lent is heard in Claudia Francis Hernemann's Lenten masterpiece, Lord Who Throughout These Forty Days, sung by congregations. Lent is heard in church bells tolling in the thick silence of death on Good Friday, stretching into Holy Saturday all the way to the empty tomb. From the cross imposed on our foreheads on Ash Wednesday to the cross on which Jesus died on Good Friday, Lent is bookended by the embodied cross. We can't blithely skip over Lent to Easter unless we want a high-sugar diet with no nutritional content. In the strange life and death of God, there was no way to Easter except on the Via Dolorosa. An analogous truth finds us during Lent. For there is no cross without resurrection, no resurrection without the cross, and no joy without its antithesis, sorrow. Give us Easter, yes, Lord, give us Easter. But first, give us the aroma of Christ, and let us carry around in our very bodies the death of Jesus. May we carry around the truths of Lent this year, inscribed on our foreheads, breathed into our nostrils, beheld by our eyes, and heard by our expectant ears. Amen. The Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson is pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Endicott, New York. He joins us with his essay, Fit to Fight, Developing Spiritual Fitness During the Season of Lent. Fighting is not traditionally associated with modern Christianity. However, it is commonly tied to fighting against social ills, political rivals, and stigma. Sadly, these are the challenges that are faced today along with inequity, lack of proper medical care for persons struggling below and at the poverty line, injustice for the poor, and discrimination on various levels. These are fights that are necessary and warranted, and often led by conscientious people whose hearts bleed for the underdog. Yet believers often shy away from such advocacy. It would be wonderful not to have to fight against the challenges that saturate our lives. Unfortunately, many find the sentiments of the words from Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son, all too familiar. Quote, life for me ain't been no crystal stair, end quote. Somewhere in the spiritual ether of Christianity, fighting acquired a negative undertone. Perhaps the Crusades decimated the idea of fighting with their bloodbaths in the early church. The Reformation was a time of great unrest and feuding. This left Christianity broken and divided on biblical issues. Perhaps the thought of losing personal possessions or being subject to unimaginable and unwarranted persecution has tempered the fight in the modern church. Perhaps the thought that things are not that bad has lulled the church into a sense of complacency. Complacency is one of those 
one of the deadliest challenges to life in general and is the mark of being indifferent to the mess that is pervasive in the world today. Complacency renders individuals unfit to fight, unfit to fight spiritual warfare, unfit to fight personal struggles, unfit to be prayer warriors, and unfit to put on the whole armor of God, as indicated in Ephesians 6 and 11. The writer continues, for we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12 RSV. To overcome these forces, one has to be fit to fight and the fitness starts within. This is where the season of Lent becomes advantageous on this spiritual journey. It provides the opportunity to be more reflective. For those who have a formal, formal spiritual discipline, it offers the occasion to tune into one's spiritual self more closely and seek a closer connection with the holy. For some, it is an opportunity to cleanse one's life of the superficialities that have subtly become norms, yet distracted from perhaps a more meaningful existence. Spiritual dis disciplines, when used to lean intentionally into a relationship with the holy, not only strip away ostinations, but prepare the human spirit for further development. The word discipline used in scripture comes from the Greek word patio, meaning to train, to chastise, to correct. We are familiar with discipline from the perspective of chastising and correcting. The word, however, has a deeper nuance than to simply correct. The English vernacular narrowly utilizes discipline for, from the perspective of punishment for correcting bad behavior or correcting an error. For many, the very word discipline causes anxiety. It has been associated with strict corrective actions that cause many to refrain from a discipline. All too many congregations are limited in the perspective of a discipline. Unfortunately, this limitation has driven many towards the propensity of avoiding spiritual disciplines that have structure, regiments, and guidelines. This leaves individuals without the opportunity of experiencing the gift of discipline. No one training for any event, whether it is a marathon, a spelling bee, or a competition, would disregard the discipline that is required. For athletes, training to be the best discipline includes, but not as but not limited to, training regularly, religiously, having a healthy diet, and getting proper rest. This is the minimum discipline required to be at one's best. To be fit to fight spiritually involves just as much discipline. Daily devotion, prayer, meditation, and a healthy diet are the staples of being fit to fight. The writer of Ephesians 6 12, according to the RSV wrote, we are not contending with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. End quote. Many will attempt to direct their energy towards fighting or contending with the flesh. 
Nevertheless, the fight is spiritual. To be fit to fight spiritually includes spiritual disciplines that equip, edify, and encourage when the days are dark and life becomes difficult. During the season of Lent, fasting and praying are spiritual practices that facilitate spiritual fitness. Spiritual practices and disciplines are healthy and necessary. Thomas More indicated, quote, a spiritual life of some kind is absolutely necessary for psychological health, end quote. Spiritual disciplines are essential in maintaining spiritual health. According to More, it is the thread that tethers the psyche. Being fit to fight can be challenging. Even so, this challenge can be supported by a life that is saturated with spiritual disciplines. There is a caution. Spiritual discipline is not designed to withdraw individuals from life. It seeks to enable one to live a well-meaning and well-balanced life. With a well-balanced life, one is fit to fight the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's guests, the Reverend John Zering, the Reverend Daniel Hedrick, and the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kegi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel-Kakey, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff-Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.